I'll sing it. Hey, y'all. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Got a quick little plug here for our new NPR One app. It's where you can hear conversations you won't get anywhere else. This week, NPR's Guy Raz talks to TED curator Chris Anderson for an inside look at the Influential Conference. Search TED Radio to find it on the NPR One app, along with stories from your local public radio station and more great podcasts. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. We will talk about Donald Trump and the GOP continuing to grapple with reality. We will also talk about Bernie Sanders. He is still drawing big crowds, but also facing a steeper than ever climb. We'll also do some listener mail and discuss what we can't let go this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. All right, let's begin as we always begin with the latest Donald Trump news. There was a big to-do on Capitol Hill today. Sarah, you were there? Indeed I was. It was the Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, major figure in the Republican Party. Major figure. Meeting with Donald Trump major figure in the Republican Party, whether some establishment Republicans like it or not. The the purpose was for Trump to meet not only with Ryan, but also with some other House leaders later in the day with some Senate leaders and with Reince Priebus, chairman of the Republican National Committee. Time, they think, to mend fences. Uh, of course, Paul Ryan has had come out and said he wasn't ready to support Trump. And Trump had said he wasn't sure he was ready to support Ryan's agenda. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they need to get on the same page. How'd the meeting go? What came out of this? Well, they released a statement, a joint statement between Ryan and Trump, uh, essentially saying that things had gone pretty well and they thought they had, you know, a, a platform to work together on and that they would keep talking. I think we had a very encouraging meeting. Uh, look, it's no secret that Donald Trump and I have had our differences. Uh, we talked about those differences today. Uh, that's common knowledge. Um, The question is, what is that we need to do to unify the Republican Party and all strains of conservative wings in the party? We had a very good and encouraging, productive conversation on just how to do that. It was important that we discussed our differences uh, that we have, but it was also important that we discussed the core principles. So not an endorsement yet from Ryan. Can I say that Ron Elving, who is one of my favorite journalists of all time, had this tweet about that meeting that I think is hilarious and so telling. He says, Ryan and Trump, like a couple on their, quote, first date, when they both know their families have already arranged the marriage. (laughs) Part of this, though, is it's important for Paul Ryan to show he's got some backbone when it comes to Trump because he doesn't want to get bullied and made to look like he's not important. I mean, the fact is he's Speaker of the House. He affects the agenda that's going to get put through. If Donald Trump becomes president, he's going to have to work with Paul Ryan. He can badmouth everyone else he wants. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are going to be two people, if he becomes president, who are going to make or break his legislation. Paul Ryan has an agenda that he has been pushing for years. He's moderated that agenda and changed that agenda slightly. But Donald Trump would have to deal with them. And Paul Ryan also understands that with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, it does hurt potentially some of those people in his conference who could run in some of those more competitive seats. And he needs to be able to give some cover to them to say uh, that why they wouldn't be able to support him. He might come around to say that he will vote for Trump, uh, but only after he feels like he's said that he's extracted a pound of flesh. So, I mean, this is what I find so confusing. And Sam, you and I have talked about this a bit. I mean, 
throughout the primary season, you had so many people, I mean, Ryan included, who were very deeply troubled, it seemed, on a very sort of philosophical, moral... And loud about it. Uh, yeah, and morally very troubled, I would say, with Donald Trump. It wasn't about ideology entirely. I mean, there was a moment after the uh, proposed temporary Muslim ban where Paul Ryan spoke out very um, clearly, I think, and very loudly against Trump. There was a white supremacist yep. quasi-endorsement. The KKK, he feels like, you know, Trump did not distance himself as quickly from some of that. And it felt like this was bigger than party, that it was about country. And I think think you still have Paul Ryan saying he's opposed to those things. And the fact is he's Speaker of the House. And if Donald Trump wanted to push through something that said he's going to ban Muslims from coming into the United States, you can pretty much guarantee it's not going to get through Paul Ryan's house because that's how he feels about it. It's an important thing for him to be able to say he's going to go as far as he can. Look, he doesn't have a lot of other options here. But I mean, you know, After all of the talk I heard from GOP establishment figures about Trump, it just seems like the level at which folks opposed him six months ago, now they're saying, oh, possibly, maybe. Isn't that 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 weird? I think that's to be expected, to be honest. And I, I mean, these are Republicans and they have to rationalize some way of coming around. Perfect example was the days before the Republican debate where Marco Rubio was still in the race. John Kasich, Ted Cruz on stage. They had been saying very harsh things about Donald Trump. He's dangerous, that there's that there's no that they would lose up and down the ballot. And remember, in that debate, they asked, would you still support the nominee? (laughs) And they all all said yes. And that totally undercut their argument for winning in that primary. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is it isn't just about do you like Donald Trump or not. It's about how much do you like or dislike Hillary Clinton. And for Mm. a lot of Republicans, that's what this is becoming about. Yeah. Does this mean that we end up with the GOP convention in July where it's several days, not a full-throated Trump endorsement, but just several days of full-throated Hillary bashing? Like, how do people... So, But what's fascinating about this whole thing is I actually think that uh, I've been surprised at how many Republicans have stuck to the never Trump thing. There have been Republicans who I thought would have to shift and hold their nose or say they wouldn't vote who've actually just said they were actually going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Are you saying more like aides or people sort of not yeah, in elected There have been like veteran right? Republican strategists who've stuck to that position and said, what don't you understand? Never, never means never, ever. And, and others and, who say they'll vote for a third party or they just won't vote. Or they won't vote or people have changed. I've been surprised at you don't usually see that at all. Right. And to see that even a little bit it's is pretty a pretty big deal. And it could, if that is something that ripples further along in the country, you could see millions of voters defect. You know, the other point here that I think is is pretty amazing is elections are choices. We always talk about that. We know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have hotly negative ratings. And the thing that I'm seeing here that's, that's pretty fascinating is that this election has become and becoming more so a referendum on Donald Trump. You know, hmm. he dominates conversation, dominates coverage. When it was thought that it was going to be a referendum on Barack Obama's policies and Hillary Clinton, who's running essentially for a third term of Barack Obama. Um, Speaking of Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, let's talk about them. What is our update on that side of the race? How much of a sure thing now is it that Hillary Clinton will most likely probably be the nominee? Look, and I've been saying, barring something unforeseen, something crazy, she's Which going has been to be this whole election. Here, here's the thing. She's 93% of the way there, if you count superdelegates. I know Sanders supporters don't like us counting superdelegates. Fact of the matter is, these are people who've publicly endorsed their pledge to her. They will only change if Bernie Sanders were to win a pledged majority. And even then, it's not clear that all of them would do so. So she's going to be the nominee, barring something unforeseen. 
even though Bernie Sanders has had a string of wins, he won again in West Virginia. He's probably going to win in Kentucky and Oregon, which vote on Tuesday. And that, again, just tells you how much demographics have been destiny in this Democratic primary. And I know I'm going to sound like some cliche sports announcer that whoever has the most points at the end of the game is probably going to (laughs) win. But the fact is there were more Hillary Clinton supporters in her bucket of demography than there were Sanders people. And she has, what, like 2 million more votes than Bernie does? Yeah, about that. Because she's won states like Texas and Florida where, you know, there are more minority voters that she seems to do better with and they're just more populous When they When the electorate was older and less white, she won. When the electorate was younger and whiter, Bernie Sanders won. There just happened to be more African-Americans, Latinos, older women in the Democratic Party than there were white liberals and 18 to 29 year olds. And also he did well in caucuses. She did well in closed primaries. And as for the the superdelegate issue, Bernie Sanders has said superdelegates should consider, even if they've pledged to Hillary Clinton, voting for me in states where I've won overwhelmingly. But But even with that, even with that, right, right, Domenico, if you look at the math, she'd still be ahead. Yeah. Even if all of those superdelegates voted the way that their states went, she'd still be some 200 superdelegates ahead of him. uh, And she'd be some 500 delegates ahead of him overall. So even if they went that way, it would not matter. Yeah. You know, I uh, spent a few days in Northern California this week chasing Bernie and Bernie supporters. And I talked to a few people that were Team Bernie that said, you know, we're not giving up. And I asked them several times. I said, "Okay, what are the chances that Bernie wins this thing? And folks were like, it's kind of slim. And I said, give me a number. And one guy was like, maybe he has a three out of 10 chance. Hmm. And he was like, it's about the platform. It's about the issue. He's become a cause. And he said, I told Bernie I was going to fight for as long as I possibly can. You know, these folks said to me that, like, whether or not Bernie gets it, it's about the message. It's about pointing out that Hillary is too tied to corporate America. And they just said, we're not going to give up. We're not going to give up. And also, there was this larger narrative that they were telling me about, this larger conversation we had about how they kind of throughout this whole campaign season have felt like it was them against the world. And they feel like what they deem as the corporate media has been in it for Hillary for a long time and has not given Bernie Sanders and his campaign fair coverage. I spent a lot of time speaking with two Bernie supporters, Cody Seibel and Carrie Corey about this. They actually volunteered for Bernie in California and they said this. But come on, right from the beginning, Donald Trump c- declares his the candidacy in every single news station. That's all we hear, Donald Trump. He can call in from his wherever he is oh, yeah. and they'll say, breaking news, it's yeah. Donald Trump. We're gonna hear what he has to say. And he has nothing to say. He has absolutely <laughs> nothing to say. There's nothing, there's no policy. There's no issue depth on, on anything he says. But when Bernie is reaching 18,000 people at a time, 30,000 people, 6,000, thousands of people coming out, why aren't we talking? Like Bernie says, why aren't we talking about that? So, like, there is this energy and this emotion with Bernie supporters where it's not just a fight against Hillary Clinton. It's a fight against this machine. Bernie Sanders has done exceedingly well, better than anybody could have thought that he would have done. I mean, people were saying that, you know, when he was 60 points behind uh, more than a year ago, that there wasn't a chance that he could win. No one expected that Bernie Sanders would would do what he did, frankly. You know, when it comes to the media, it's funny. I was looking at uh, Neiman Labs, which uh, put out a report on whether or not the media has how much it has to do. And it's sort of chicken and egg. It's like there does tend to be a correlation between media coverage and polls. But the question is, what what drives those things? Is it 
the polling that drives the media coverage or is it the media coverage that drives the polling? Because they said that both Trump and Sanders, for example, uh, were covered, quote, in proportion to their poll results. <laughs> Pretty much everyone was, it said. The exceptions, they said, were Jeb Bush, who seemed to be covered about twice as much as his standing in the polls. And I think that's because most people thought he would pick up to that. Uh, and Ben Carson, who might have been slightly undercovered, they said. So kind of fascinating. There were no definitive conclusions as to which leads to what. Uh, but there's always clearly this kind of frustration, frankly, when your side is down. But, you know, there was a time when it felt like three out of every four stories about the dim side of the race was about Hillary and not about Bernie. And and I think that there was... Well, for some and, amount of time, also, a valid it, critique. But was it positive or negative coverage of Hillary Clinton? Co- Frankly, f- early on, most of the coverage of Hillary Clinton, if you look back, was a lot about her emails email scandal, and Benghazi. Benghazi yeah, I, can, I can understand what Sam is saying. I mean, I think there is some level of understanding, I think, writ large about, or, or a moment maybe you could say, of self-reflection in terms of how you know the media does choose to cover certain candidates. I think we heard this from the uh, Ohio governor, John Kasich's campaign as well, or, or sort of some of his fans. You know, that, look, here's a guy who's uh, been the governor of Ohio, this battleground state for two terms. And, you know, nobody's giving him attention. And look, let's be real. Even I would say like some slight movements that Donald Trump does on a given day, like tends to merit a lot of coverage. You could argue now, like, by whom does it always merit coverage? Yeah. Well, is it television news? Is it newspapers? Oh, yeah. I think there's some and sort not of all differences. Media is media, not all exactly. media is the same. But, but like, I could see why you're frustrated. Like, here's I the thing, right? Like, there is no Walter Cronkite anymore. Our media coverage is much more diffuse. Yes. If you, whatever you want to know, whatever echo chamber you want to go into, there's some niche echo chamber for you. And the fact is when people are used to living in that kind of social media environment that creates an algorithm personally for you to tailor stories to your interests and your friends' interests, then you're going to think that that's the way the world is generally. And, you know, we don't have the kind of influence, I think, that a lot of people think we do. I think that it's it's a lot more diffuse, certainly, than it was 30 years ago. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about a political story that is happening outside of the country for a bit. Uh, this has been a really big week for Brazil. That country, it seems to me, every major headline from out of there this year has been a bad one. Um, just this week, President Dilma Rousseff, uh, she is facing impeachment proceedings over her handling of the economy. There's a motion to annul the 2014 results of the election over illegal campaign contributions. There's a major corruption scandal that her predecessor is dealing with. All of this happening at the same time that Zika is a big deal in that country. And, and they're prepping for the Rio Olympics, the Olympics this summer. Like, Brazil is having a very, very bad time, and they are on the verge of kicking a president out of office. Like, we think our politics is crazy, but Brazil is having a crazy, crazy time right now. Meh, we've done impeachment. <laughs> but <laughs> but this could go all the way, right? This could go all the way, right? Yeah. And, and, and it can go all the way... In the midst of a public health crisis exactly. and the Olympics. Yeah. yeah, but what's fascinating, though, is that a lot of what the outrage is toward... Rousseff is more to do with the economy and blaming her for what they what people see a really as big a populist mismanagement of the economy. It's fascinating because it's like you ha- would have uh, lots of Bernie Sanders and Trump type senators in our Congress to then oust a president over, by the way, the thing that most presidents have the least amount of control over with the economy. I mean, so basically these allegations are that she fudged the numbers and moved some funds around to cover up just how big uh, the recession 
was, right? Um, so kind of you, like if a corporation like fudged its earnings reports. Like, we're doing better yeah, than it looks like. Yeah, exactly. So you have this impeachment on top of a corruption scandal, on top of Zika, on top of the Olympics not really going well. There are athletes now saying that they won't go because the water's too dirty to swim in, because Zika is rampant. Like, this is a year that is really, really bad for Brazil. So whenever we think it's crazy, crazy, crazy over here, just know. Every country everywhere has their fair share of political drama. We're not alone. We're not alone. <laughs> Cue Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the general election battleground states, and we'll do some listener mail. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places, help more moms get prenatal care, or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs. Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, Sarah here, recording this near Donald Trump protesters near Capitol Hill. Want to let you know that our friends at NPR's Invisibilia are back with season two of their podcast, June 17th. This season, they're going to some really interesting places. Prison, an oil rig, a McDonald's in Russia, a beach in New Jersey. All to explore the hidden forces that shape us and our institutions, our work, families, and governments. You can catch up on season one of Invisibilia anytime and listen to the season two preview starting May 20th, wherever you get podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. All right, we are back. Domenico, you had a big story this week about what a hypothetical battleground state matchup could look like between Trump and Clinton. Explain. Yeah. And, you know, based on history and demography, it's really early to start looking at polls. So, you know, based mostly on history and demography and little splash of where things might be with polling at this point, I was able to get Hillary Clinton actually to 270. And I should say that uh, 270 is the number that you need to win. Okay, we've been talking about 1237 and 2383 for the primaries and what the number you need for delegates, 270. Electoral college votes. Of the electoral college votes is what you need. It's winner take all. And I was able to get her there actually without Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Colorado, or Iowa. Wow. Wait, none of them or with losing any of them? Losing all of them. Whoa. So what are the battleground states then for you in this makeup? Well, I mean, that doesn't mean that the lean Democratic states are not battleground states because the money is still going to be spent in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, New Hampshire. Uh, All these states are states that you know, have gone Democratic or trended Democratic. You throw Nevada in there, for example. Nevada, Virginia, those are two states that demographically have trended more Democratic. New Hampshire, Barack Obama won it twice. John Kerry won it in 2004. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, for all the talk of Donald Trump's uh, surge in the Midwest, potentially, those are states that have gone Democratic for 30 years. Uh, So if Trump is going to win, you know, he's going to have to do well uh, in that upper Midwest and going to have to win some of those lean Democratic states. How does turnout affect this? I mean, this is going to be a hard year to predict turnout because they both have such high unfavorables. What do we know about that so far? Yeah, well, you know, there's some disagreement on on what happens 
in an election where people have very high unfavorables, right? I mean, there's also a theory that Donald Trump will turn out every single pillar of the Democratic Party. I mean, in opposition to him. In opposition. I mean, you know, we've heard stories. Asma did a great piece that aired uh, about people who are registering to become citizens for the first time uh, who've been in this country and not been citizens uh, just because of Donald Trump. Uh, and that that's up uh, some 15 percent or so. So, you know, I think that there are going to be core constituencies like Latinos who are going to go to the polls. And that's going to mean even though I've got Florida, for example, in the toss up column, there are a lot of people who think because of demography over the last 10, 15 years that Florida's probably finger on the scale to Democrats uh, because of the Latino population that has boomed. A place like Arizona, for example, I have it in lean Republican, maybe a likely Republican, but you have someone like you watch the body language of John McCain, the senator there who's up for reelection. And he was caught on tape saying that with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, he's concerned because Arizona has 30 percent Latino population. I mean, the other thing I think that's interesting about some of those states like Florida and Arizona is that so much of the Latino growth in recent years has actually come not from new migration into the country. It's come from 18-year-olds who are Mm. born U.S. citizens, who are second or third generation Latinos who are eligible to vote. And I know that there's been a strong, intense push to go into high schools across the country. I was actually in a high school in Florida where this was being done to register people at 17 or 18 so that they, whether or not they go to college, are already registering people in high schools to vote. And now, I mean, we don't know what Trump's going to do the next six months. There is a chance that he changes his message and rhetoric and begins to appeal to Latinos and women and what have you. Is that possible? How long too? are people's memories, though, on some of the things, you know, that, that he said in the past? Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to do a sort of etch-a-sketch, as uh, one of Mitt Romney's advisors had said. You know, plus, I think it's also hard for him personally. I mean, I think that you will hear him modulate his tone. We already heard it in his national security speech where he tried to lay out a foreign policy agenda. He didn't mention the uh, ban on Muslims, even though he later said that he still backs it up. Uh, And he didn't mention the wall, the Great Wall of Mexico. This was not mentioned. Um, So, you know, I think that you're going to see a sort of softening of the tone. We have to also remember in these primaries, primary turnout has zero to do with what happens in general election. You should realize that by numbers, okay, the number of people who turned out to vote in their Republican primary was uh, about 5% of eligible voters Hmm. in this country, Hmm. uh, that is very different than what you're going to see in a general election where it could be upwards of 60%. Okay. Uh, Asma, we talked before on the podcast about the woman's card. You had a story this week all about it uh, with a twist on the idea. Talk about that. I did. So uh, I guess maybe we should just backtrack a bit in case people aren't familiar with the woman's card. And actually, Asma and I are carrying again today, right? (laughs) In my wallet. Um, So basically, Donald Trump has uh, been saying that Hillary Clinton is using the woman's card um, and that if she didn't use that, she'd only be able to glean like 5% of the vote. Well, I think the only card she has is the woman's card. She's got nothing else going. And frankly, if Hillary Clinton were a man, I don't think she'd get 5% of the vote. The only thing she's got going is the woman's card. And the beautiful thing is women don't like her. And then recently also he's been sort of saying that, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton made some comments about him shouting at a woman. And he sort of, you know, responded and said, well, you know, what is it that we have to be so politically correct? We can't even talk to a woman anymore. I mean, all of the men, we're petrified to speak to women anymore. We may raise our voice. You know what? The women get it better than we do, folks. All right. They get it better than we do. 
And he said this at a rally out west in Spokane, Washington. And he's been making this critique rather frequently nowadays. And so I started talking to a few political scientists, um, people who look at women and gender and politics and political behavior to get a sense of what is going on. And I would say the most interesting analysis I got is from this guy, Dan Casino. He's a political scientist. That's a great name. It is a great name. He's a political scientist at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, and he focuses on political psychology. He did this experiment where he essentially, um, in the context of a traditional political presidential poll, threw in a question. And at the very beginning of the poll, a subset of voters were asked this simple question. It is, there are an increasing number of households in which the woman makes more money than the man. How about in your household? Now, they didn't really care about the actual answer. They were just intrigued by asking people that question, whether or not it would change their support for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Did it? And remarkably, they saw about a 20, I mean, it was a double digit shift. In in support support for? For Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Wow. So after being asked that question, regardless of the answer? At the beginning of the poll. Making the point that more women are making more money than men now primed these people to support Trump more. He says it reminded people of this thing that he studies called gender role threat. This idea that, you know, women are being able to make more money um, or sort of having different roles in society. Very interesting. And so I talked to him about the way that Donald Trump's been speaking on the campaign trail lately. And he said he felt like this was a completely focused critique. This is an appeal saying basically to other men, hey, The women are ganging up on us. The women are using their gender to get power from us. All the women are going to get together and vote for Hillary Clinton. We have to band together as men to stop Hillary Clinton. And so Dan's point is that Donald Trump is actually playing on sort of a gender resentment or a threat of gender roles that some people have in society. Uh, And, you know, another professor told me that she saw this throughout the primary election, that if you saw the way in which Donald Trump spoke about his primary opponents, remember Little Marco or Mm -hmm. Jeb Bush needs his mommy because Jeb Bush had asked, you know, Barbara Bush to come out and campaign with him. Low energy, Jeb. But this idea that in many ways throughout the primary season, Donald Trump has been using his own gender card. Interesting. All right, let's hit the mailbag. First of all, we got a lot of questions this week about what we would call Bill Clinton if Hillary Clinton is elected president. First dude, first gentleman. I mean, I feel like Hillary would, would call him. Get Bill. out of my shot. She calls him Bill. <laughs> Get out of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Over there, Bill. Wow. Sit down. Uh, first gen- <laughs> I, th- I think the actual term would be first gentleman. Uh, okay. You did some research on that? Yeah, I had looked it up in, uh, in 2008, actually, because at that point when Hillary mm. Clinton was, again, the <laughs> the front runner for the nomination. And, uh, you know, you had to start thinking about what would Does somebody Bill come up with that term? Like, is there It's an like official... the counterpart to first lady, right? Ladies and gentlemen. There but, like, go. is there an official, like, I don't know, historian? I mean, does somebody actually come up with the label? Like an Emily Post for, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. Good question. We could find that out in a different podcast. It but feels... I think a lot of people might call them, you know, whatever they want. First dude. I think it's going to affect the vice presidential pick because there are going to be people, you know, the Biden rule with Obama was I want to be in on every decision. I want you to talk to me before anything you decide that's big. And that's going to be know, Bill. Bill Clinton could be somebody who's in the way of some of that. Yeah. But, anyway. you know, would people also call him president, Mr. President? Because don't we t- keep using that term yeah. throughout former, president. former presidents? Could be confusing, lifetime? right? President Clinton, which one? If, oh, if she's true. president? This is all if. If, yeah. All right. Anyway, here is a letter from Nate in Utah. Nate writes, 
I am an 18-year-old first-time voter living in Utah. As you know, Utah is about as red of a state as there is, and Hillary Clinton is about as popular as a root canal. Mm. Okay. However, well over half of Utah, including myself, is Mormon. The church's history of being legally persecuted and a value on integrity meant on our caucus night Donald Trump received exactly one vote in my precinct. My question is, can more traditionally red states like Utah turn blue in the fall? I don't know. There's the possibility, um, you know, there was a poll that showed uh, Hillary Clinton uh, beating Donald Trump by two points in Utah. It was like 38, 36. But that was before the primary. Uh, That's nowhere near 50 percent. The likelihood is that Utah stays uh, red. But there is certainly going to be something to watch there and there needs to be more reporting. There are Republican leaning states, places like Arizona, uh, Georgia, for example, which has had a huge demographic change and shift uh, over the last 10 years that are going to be places to watch. There are going to be these states that, you know, may have trended one way or another uh, in in this election that could upend the map. And I think what makes Utah really interesting is, as uh, did he give us our name? As, as Nate, Nate mentions, it has a heavy Mormon population. And I think we saw this in the primary. It's a state that Ted Cruz won. And I think early on, we've been hearing, and this was stuff I was hearing from some voters during the primary season, was that many of them felt very spiritually and morally conflicted about some of Donald Trump's messages. And it's and similar. So whether, yeah. Yeah. It's similar to what you hear from from. Uh, you know, really church going evangelicals. Our colleague Danielle Kurtzleben has done some reporting on on this that, you know, of course, Donald Trump likes to talk about how well he does with evangelicals. And it's true. He does about as well if you look at exit polls with evangelicals as he does with other Republicans. But if you look at those who go to church regularly, those who are very devout, many of them are really not happy with Donald Trump. And I think, you know, uh, uh, to your point, Asma, about about Mormons, it'll be interesting to see what these really devout and you know possibly even really devout Catholics and really conservative regular churchgoers can they square their values and their beliefs with some of the you know Donald Trump's history, his multiple marriages, and of course the, his tone. And who's been Donald Trump's principal antagonist? In Mitt this Romney. Campaign? Mitt Romney, who is or has been a lay bishop in the in the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. All right. Finally, Gerard in New Jersey wrote. Every day I drive about half the distance of the New Jersey Turnpike. Gosh, sorry, Gerard. Um, It's an 80-minute commute. Again, sorry, Gerard. Um, On any given day, he says, I see at least two dozen Bernie 2016 bumper stickers on cars. However, I almost never see a Ready for Hillary sticker. Does the bumper sticker disparity have something to do with fundraising, the kind of people that support Bernie, or is it that it is unfashionable to proclaim your love of Hillary Clinton? Enthusiasm is a really important part of elections. But again, this parallels some of what we saw with crowds versus votes. Yeah, they I don't mean, necessarily translate. I mean, because like in New York, Bernie Sanders had a rally in Manhattan that got 30,000 people. He ended up losing that state by double digits. Like a lot of these symbols, bumper stickers, crowds, whatever, they aren't as predictive as things like demographics. But it's a good question, though, because with Hillary Clinton not having the bumper stickers, you don't think that there's a question as we move into a general election? She will likely be, you know, opposing a candidate who, as Donald Trump is, I mean, you go to places around the country where I see loads of Donald Trump signs. I see a lot of enthusiasm for the candidate among his supporters. I think you're right. I mean, I think that that is the one open question, her saying that she's not a natural candidate like Barack Obama or her husband, Bill Clinton. I think that's the one open question why a lot of people still, even though they look at the history, they look at the demographics, and it should mean a Clinton win, 
she's got to figure out a way to get her message straight and fire up some people and have an inspirational, positive message, which is not something she's been able to channel in this primary race. Is some of it demographics, too, or like younger people who are driving around like their grandpa's, you know, old Honda Civic, more willing to slap a bumper sticker on it than, you know, maybe the more, you know, somewhat older, older supporters of Clinton. If you look at, you know, the, the way the ages skew, I don't know. Parents who don't want to scrape the bumper sticker uh, off later. Car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. That is all the mail, which means it's time for Can't Let It Go. When we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Asma, you'll go first. Sam, it involves you. I'm fine with that. So, you can't let me go. No. <laughs> Neither so, can other people, right? So we have, Why did you can't see I that? quit you? So there were these two fangirls of Sam's. Um, young women. Aww. Young women. Young women. They're high schoolers, seniors in high school, yes. who made Sam Sanders tank tops. <laughs> and they really wore cute. them together, matching days, and then tweeted it to Sam. Sam's wearing one right now. <laughs> Fits nicely. No one tank needs top. to see that. Yeah. No, I saw it. With a picture plastered of Sam Sanders yeah. across well, her tank top. Well, what did so, it say? It said something it said, so there's right? a story. So there's a oh. word under there. It says W E E W, and we were like, "What is that word? What does it mean?" And they said that's the word for things that they like or things that are cool. So I guess it's like pronounced woo, like W H E W. No W E E W. I know, but it's like woo. Otherwise, I, I would woo. say it like woo, but they say it like woo. I don't know how they. Why say not just W O O? That's a woo. Maybe maybe there's like a bad like connotation a for a woo girl, right? So what I is don't a woo know. girl? That's a thing. So to those two young ladies out there, thank you for that. I, it made my week. I know that. I kind of wanted us all to wear matching Sam Sanders shirts. I know. If I'm honest, I kind of want one. <laughs> um, who's next? Oh, Sarah, you want to go next? So like we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, this week I covered uh, Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, their big meeting in Washington. And uh, we didn't get inside. But outside, there was a, a lot of stuff going on. And, and Sam, my fellow church kid, you might recognize this. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. So this was. I want. You guys to are see like. You. This what? was like the praise and worship. Yeah, band back in the day. Yeah, yeah. It's not quite Hallelujah, but. It'll do. It'll do. <laughs> It'll do so can pitch. you explain what so, it is? <laughs> what? Why would you want to know? So, the, so this, so we're like outside, all these reporters waiting to see if anything happens. And this guy, there's a lot of protesters, lots of stuff going on. But this guy like comes up with a with a like a big you know speaker unit and starts playing this song and singing along to it. And he's got you know there were a lot of anti-Trump people there, but he's got a Donald Trump face on his shirt, "Make America Great Again" on the T-shirt. And you guys, he's holding like. A giant ram's horn. A.K.A. Shofar. A.K.A. Shofar. What? <laughs> this is biblical, like Old Testament. They would march around the temple walls on the seventh time, like, play the shofar. Is my, that really a ram's head? A ram? Yeah. What is he blowing into? I, my I mother has a shofar. She, like, gave some money to some minister. Not to be confused a with a chauffeur. <laughs> I'd rather oh, have a chauffeur than a shofar, <laughs> But, <personally>. okay, <laughs> my question, though, what's more annoying? Shofar, Fuvuzela, or the hip-hop foghorn? Like, I have to say the Vuvuzela just because I heard it. Sorry, NPR where I work, but I heard it on our air so much. Is that just during the World Cup? The air horn. How is that a hip hop horn? It's in like all the songs when they have the remix. It's also at like every high school basketball game. Wow. Okay. I think Sam's gonna like do that eventually now. Uh, Domenico, what can you not let go? What a day. Wow. Uh, I can't let any of this go now. Um, (laughs) I cannot let go 
Mitt Romney this week coming out and calling for Donald Trump to release his taxes and saying that if Donald Trump won't release his taxes, it's, quote, disqualifying. Did Romney release his taxes? <laughs> this is what makes me laugh because the irony here is that in 2012 – oh, by the way, I used the word ironic. You see that? Oh, that actually worked. Did you actually use it correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, we'll see. <laughs> we'll Mitt Romney in 2012 uh, – only released a couple years of taxes, which prompted Harry Reid, the then majority leader, uh, Democratic leader in the Senate, to go to the Senate floor and say that Mitt Romney, you know, it's out there that Mitt Romney hasn't paid taxes in 10 years. So let's make him prove that he hasn't paid taxes in 10 years. And I think we have a little bit of that. He's refused to release his tax returns, as we know. If a person coming before this body wanted to be a cabinet officer, he couldn't be if he had the re- he did the same refusal Mitch Romney does about tax returns. So the word's out that he hasn't paid any taxes for 10 years. Let him prove that he has paid taxes because he hasn't. Let him prove he had to pay taxes because he hasn't. Wow. <laughs> okay. Now, he did wind up releasing more. And but he paid a very low rate, right? Yeah. I just thought it was ironic given that he's criticizing Donald Trump for not releasing yeah. his taxes when he'd been criticized on his. So you're just seeing at this point, you know, them. and Romney said that the only reason Trump won't release them is because there's a huge bombshell in them. Huge. Yeah. So Sam, you. So as we mentioned, I was in Northern California this week chasing Bernie Sanders and Bernie supporters. And on Monday night, Bernie had an event outside in Sacramento, the state's capital. Very well attended. Thousands of people. Nice big outdoor party. But one of the opening acts played a song that just stuck with me. It was set to the melody of the Johnny Cash classic Ring of Fire. But the words were different. We're going to play a bit of it for you guys. It was really weird. So, like, you have this really nice, like... I'm not sure arson's a good message. Well, so here's the thing. So, like, I talked to some Bernie supporters... And they said, you know, the same anger you see on the side from folks that support Trump, we're just as angry. We've just channeled our anger differently. And I think that song kind of just encapsulates it. It's like a little bit farmer's market, a little bit, you know, cage match. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to end on some strictly apolitical music, our theme song. That is a wrap now. As always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Uh, and find us on Twitter if you want to talk. Or you can email us, too. Uh, send your questions to nprpolitics at npr.org. Also, thanks to everyone who snagged tickets to our live show next week here in D.C. I'm Ooh. still trying to figure out what to wear, what kind of socks to put on, etc. <laughs> or if you're going to wear shoes. Same. I, I probably won't wear shoes. Oh, my God. Same. But hopefully we'll have some more of these live shows and other places later on this year. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>